This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as uh, simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Hey, everybody, this is Richard Deitch, and welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. My producer is Patrick Antonetti. Three guests this week, three excellent guests. First segment, Robert Griffin III of ESPN. He is a ESPN college football and NFL analyst there, and uh, he has been excellent so far. I mean, really, really good right off the jump. And uh, we talk about uh, how Robert got uh, the ESPN job, his audition process with Fox and ESPN. Both those networks uh, wanted him, and uh, he was good enough to take us sort of inside the audition process and how that went, uh, his preparation, how he uh, found himself with uh, Mark Jones and Quint uh, Kessinich. Robert gets into uh, production meetings and what it's like to be a newcomer there and a newcomer indeed who has to run those production meetings because that's what the analyst does. And then we get in a little bit about some of the things and games that he has called as well as his uh, his big interest in being part of NFL broadcasting. Obviously talked to him a little bit about what his future will or will not be in the NFL, and uh, you can hear that. So that's the first segment, and it was terrific. He's followed by Katie Strang and Mark Lazarus. They are both my colleagues at The the Athletic. Katie Strang is an investigative reporter. Mark Lazarus is a senior writer in Chicago, covers the Blackhawks, among other teams there. And and we talk about the coverage of um, the Jenner and Block investigation, which uh, obviously uh, has resulted in some, um, some people leaving their positions in the NHL, and certainly uh, Rick Westhead's interview with Kyle Beach, one of the uh, the most extraordinary interviews I've ever seen on sports television, and really changed the game on this. So Katie and Mark talk about the reporting of the story, what the impact will be on this Jenner uh, and Block investigation, um, how one goes about doing these kind of stories. Katie Strang is uh, about the best in the business when it comes to sports investigations. And then we just close on... Um, how ESPN and Turner Sports, the new television rights holders, will approach this or might approach this. So Robert Griffin III, followed by Katie Strang and Mark Lazarus, coming up on the Sports Media Podcast. All right, as I said at the top, uh, Robert Griffin joined ESPN as a college football and NFL analyst in August of 2021. He calls a weekly ESPN ABC college football game with Mark Jones and Quint Kessinich. He'll be contributing to ESPN's college football playoff coverage. Uh, you'll see him uh, involved in their Super Bowl coverage as well. I think uh, most sports fans will know he played eight seasons in the NFL 
and obviously was a Heisman Trophy winner at Baylor. And uh, pleased to be joined by Robert Griffin III. Robert, thanks for joining me today on the Sports Media Podcast. No, no problem, Richard. Appreciate you having me on, man. You got it. All right, so you're, uh, you know, a lot of your interviews obviously are about um, football, uh, whether it's what you see or your own career. This is going to be very sort of media-centric, so hopefully it'll be a little different for you and uh, maybe some questions you haven't been asked before. Um, So let's start here, uh, big picture. Why did you want to head into sports broadcasting, even it's even if it's for a short duration, a short amount of time? I got to tell you the truth. I didn't. <laughs> this uh, this <laughs> is something that kind of came out of nowhere for me. Back in 2017, I was out of the league for a year and uh, I was 27, you know, thinking to myself, you know, I'm going to get signed. I'll just keep training, keep training, keep training and not really worry about that next chapter. And uh, I didn't get signed that year. Um, but obviously I got back in the league with the Ravens and was there for three seasons and uh, this offseason, I just didn't want to take that same approach. So I continue to train every single day, but I started trying to knock on some other doors. And uh, it, start, it all started with an audition with Fox. And uh, I never thought that broadcasting would be uh, the avenue for me. Uh, we thought it would be more just studio, but I called a game for Fox. ESPN found out about it, uh, called a game for ESPN and audition, and then the rest is history. So uh, I'm, I'm on this wild, wild ride with everybody else. It's been a lot of fun. Let's talk about that because I think the people who listen to this podcast are really fascinated by the audition process and just how it works. So let's sort of get a little detailed here. Fox calls you in. Um, Do you go to their Los Angeles studios and call a game with an existing play-by-play person? How did that work? Yeah, so, you know, full disclosure, I went out to Fox in in L.A. and called a game with Kevin Burkhardt. Um, So it was was a big-time audition with with a guy of his stature. And they don't give you uh, much lead time to prepare uh, for these games uh, that you're going to call. So uh, they give you a a recipe of how many different teams it could be. And you just have to study all those different teams. And they don't give you the exact game because they don't want you to be up there trying to predict what's going to happen because you've already seen said game. And then we called the game, uh, you know, a a full game. And then they did some did some studio work uh, also with Kevin Burkhardt. And uh, that was it. But you got to study. You got to study about four to five teams. Uh, you know, I don't. I, I tried not to watch any of the games just so I could, you know, react honestly to what was going on uh, uh, in the games. And then you just got to allow your experience and the things that you see and how you see the game because that's what they're most focused on. They want to see how you see the game and how you can portray that quickly uh, to the viewer. Uh, and it was a lot of fun. So. You do the Fox um, audition. Uh, from what I understand, Fox, uh, you know, really liked you. They were high on you. Whether it's you or your agent, you eventually then had to, uh, you know, ESPN gets wind of this or your representation talks to ESPN. Do you then do the same thing? Do you go to Bristol, Connecticut and call a, a, a previous college football game with one of their existing play-by-play people? Yes, I did. And, and you know, for me, it was a blessing um, the, the way that ESPN found out about it and, and was eager to bring me in to, to do the, the audition. Uh, and I got Reese Davis. So wow. was, uh, big, big, two, two big time guys. Yeah, it was, uh, it was, it was a blessing. And, and I knew the mag, you know, the magnitude of what was going on and the gravity of the situation. Uh, when I walked in there and I saw Reese and, you know, we talked about, you know, college football awards and all that back when I was in college. And it was just a really cool experience. So I called a game with Reese uh, and, and Reese told me 
um, you know, some pretty cool things about, you know, just how well the game went and how well we did um, that, you know, I'll carry with me forever. And uh, yeah, I mean, the bottom line was both, both, you know, networks brought the A game to the table and, and wanted to see, you know, how I could handle that and if I could hang and, and uh, you know, luckily I was able to go out and impress them. Let's t- let's take the ESPN one after you do the broadcast. Do you, by the way, do you remember the game you called the mock game? Yeah, I do. <laughs> we called the uh, national. If you, if, we called the national. Oh, uh, national championship. Yeah. So. Oh, that's awesome. Not only did I they bring that. in Reese Davis, so, but they they made us call the national. They, yeah. All right. Well, they weren't fooling around then on the addition, Robert. I love that. Um, so, do do you get immediate feedback? Like, uh, do the do executives come in and say, "Hey, Robert, we really, really liked this. This was great." You obviously got it from Reese, or do you literally do you leave the compound and then eventually they call you back a day or two or a week later? How does that work in terms of of you getting a sense of how you did? Well, as you know, in the in the media world, uh, everything is immediate. So. Uh, right yeah. The game was called, you know, Reese kind of put his headset down, looked at me, talked to me about, you know, just how impressed he was with the audition. Uh, and then I had Patrick Donaher there uh, as well. Uh, there at, you know, exec at ESPN who, you know, really just told yeah. me that they had to rethink everything that they were thinking for me uh, coming in at ESPN because I had come in in 2018 uh, early in the year. Uh, when I was out in 2017 and did like a car wash at ESPN. And it was a little, it was kind of like a live audition. And I went on all the shows, first take, all those different things. And um, they wanted to sign me on to NFL Live that year. And I uh, wow. signed a couple weeks later to the Baltimore Ravens. So they, they all along thought it would be studio, you know, doing the, the NFL Live and the countdown shows and all that stuff. Uh, but after, they, after we did the game and then we also did studio work, uh, a studio audition there at ESPN, uh, they just kind of told me that they were going to have to rethink everything. And I took that as good news. You know, you, you, yeah. the more you can do, the better it is, of course. And uh, so they gave me immediate feedback right away. And then that's when you guys all saw the, the uh, media reports about the bidding war. And then it was getting calls from the Norbies of the world and uh, you know, all, all these guys at ESPN or Fox. And, and that was a cool process too, because you always want to go, you always want to feel like you wanted, right? And uh, yeah, so there really was it. There really, I mean, these two entities really wanted you, right? They both made offers. Yeah, they both made offers. Uh, it was it was a lot of back and forth. It was a it was a tough discussion because um, it was not only just which network to go to and what was the best opportunity right now, uh, but it was also making sure you go about it the right way and 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 don't you know burn any of those bridges and and, and keep that communication open because you never know what could happen in the future. And then on top of that, I'm, I'm still 31. And uh, yeah. it was uh, a little bit of concern that, that I would go back and, and play. And, and for me, it's like right now, uh, you know, we're over halfway through the season and I have a job and my job is to be the best broadcaster I can possibly be for ESPN. And that's kind of the approach I'm taking to it. Do I, do I train every day? Yeah, I train every day. Yeah. Am I ready to go? Yeah, I'm ready to go. But at the end of the day, right now, uh, the things that are paying the bills and, and, uh, and the fun that I'm having with the crew, Mark Jones, Kessnick and the guys, uh, it's been a, a lot of fun. Yeah, since I mean, I, obviously, I would have gotten to this, but you brought it up now. So, do you do you approach? Are you approaching ESPN, Robert, on like a sort of a year by year basis, and you will see what happens with the NFL, or have you crossed whatever that sort of mental path is, where you know you think of yourself as a broadcaster now as opposed to a football player? How does it work for you? Uh, I think 
I think for me, thinking, thinking of myself as a football player is what's made this process so fun uh, because I love the game. Uh, and football's given so much to me over the last 20 years. I think that people hear that in the excitement when we call the games. They hear that in the energy when we're calling the games and when we talk football on TV. So uh, I don't think the football player in me will ever die. You know, even, even when I'm, you know, 67 years old and couldn't even think about playing on a, on a football field, I think that type of, that type of energy is, is uh, just embedded in me and that love for the game is embedded in me. But uh, when you talk about just uh, like a contractual thing with ESPN um, and, and playing football, you know, like right now, my contract is my contract. I'm at ESPN and that's that's the approach I'm taking. I'm not really worried about anything else. You know, what what comes along the way comes along the way. But right now, you know, ESPN and, and my crew, they can they all know, like, I'm in this. Uh, I'm, in, I'm in this with them for the long haul. Um, as long as uh, the opportunity is there for me to, to broadcast and, and, and be with these guys and, and be in this industry, then I'm going to do that. And if anything else was to ever pop up, then, you know, that is what it is. If um if if bro- if this sort of second life now becomes a you know twenty thirty year career, which obviously would be phenomenal, are you at peace with whatever your last game was? Was your last game as a professional athlete? Yeah, I mean you have to be. You know, you always say you never live with any regrets. And if this uh, opportunity in in the broadcasting world, uh, the uh, the ability to to help mold the mind and, and teach and, and continue to add to the game of football. Um, I don't look at my last game uh, and say, man, I wish, I wish it had ended differently. Uh, a lot of times football players, we don't get to end our career the way that we want to, you know, that's just the nature of the game. It doesn't always end pretty. And yeah, look, I, I tore my hamstring off the bone in my last game playing for the Baltimore Ravens. That's obviously not the way that I want to end my career, and I want to end my career on my own terms. But in this opportunity right now, I think it's, um, it's truly been a blessing. Uh, a lot of times we try to, you know, force the issue and figure out what we're going to do next. And this one kind of just, you know, came out of nowhere. You know, and I can only thank God uh, for – for putting the people in my life that he has to help this opportunity come about. And then the team that I, that I started off with, with Kim Bell, you know, Kim Belton, the producer, Andy DeMarco, director, and then you have Mark Jones, Quinn Kessenick. And, you know, our whole crew just, we, we vibe really well together. And it's been amazing for me to get a start with people who have so much experience in this industry. Uh, and that's been a blessing for sure. Yeah. I mean, you can tell the group, you know, this already that like, uh, you know, one of the keys to successful broadcast teams is really how they interact off screen as opposed to on screen. You really have to develop your chemistry away from the camera. You know, uh, in a, in a pre COVID world that would have been going out to dinner and hanging out together, et cetera. But your, your group sounds like that. I will get to Mark and Quint in a second, but one of the things, Robert, that I've been really impressed by when I listen to you is it's to be very blunt. It's like impossible to fake preparation. Like, you know, when people sort of research and study and know um, what they're talking about. And in college, I think sort of uh, would expose that even more because most of us like sort of tangentially follow the NFL. These are famous people. You know that you play in the league. But, you know, if you're doing a college team, like you got to do the research to know who the backup offensive tackle is or like you're going to get exposed if you don't know anything. So I wonder for your, for my audience, if you could take me through your preparation because it's very clear that you are someone who prepares for this stuff. Oh, man, I appreciate that, uh, that knowledge. And what I'll say is if you can do college football, you can do pro football. 
because, as you said, these guys, these guys in the NFL, they're known, they're famous guys. The rosters change every year, but not that drastically. So once you get into that, it's that the art in the NFL is, a, is about storytelling when you've already told the story so many times. Whereas in college, uh, a lot of times you're getting different teams uh, every week. And we've had the blessing to call a couple teams this year for, the, for a second time. And the challenge there, as I said, is just telling the story again, because you, you know that the viewer that watched this game might not be the viewer that watched the last game or the viewer at three o'clock might not be the viewer at four o'clock. And uh, so for me, preparation wise, I, I always get the game records or requested game records from from the crew on Sunday and I start watching tape then. So, yeah, I'm, I'm watching NFL football and, and staying up to date on that because I'm also an NFL analyst. But I start watching the college games on Sunday and I try to spend two days, two to three days watching the tape before I ever look at, uh, you know, a guy's stats or or try to look up and get the special interest stories. So that's usually my Sunday and Monday. And then Tuesday, I start getting prepared for our call with the away team. Uh, that'll be on Wednesday. So now I'm starting to look at the stats. What were the preseason expectations? Who's played well? Who hasn't played well? You know, what are the traditions of the school? What are some cool tidbits of recruiting stories about the individuals? Where are they from? You know, just uh, and then on Wednesday, you get a lot of the bulk of your information from the coaches. Uh, so when you get on the phone with the coaches and you can talk about their offensive scheme and their defensive scheme and the head coach and his philosophy, all these different things uh, you add to what you already know. The last thing you want to do is go into that call not knowing anything. You know, the last thing you want to do. So then on Thursday, I get to – I go back and I watch the tape again of the team we just talked about, uh, we talked to on Wednesday, and prep for the call on Friday with the home team. Uh, and then I just go through that same process again. And, uh, like, the energy and stuff, like, you can't fake energy. You can't fake preparation, in my opinion, because fake energy is can be perceived pretty quickly. Um, so we just try to have fun, teach, and just be that uh, ESPN has an E in it for a reason, you know? It's, it's entertainment, and we're not the main show. The show is the game. So we're trying to just add to the game. And I think that's the process I, I go through, my crew goes through every single week, trying to sit, figure out how can we add to the game, uh, whether it's with analysis or information. That's well said. Uh, the, one of the things that um, in, t- in talking to a lot of analysts over the years and having done a couple of embeds for production teams, what's very clear, especially in football, Robert, is whether it's Romo or Aikman or Chris Collinsworth, the analyst almost always leads these production meetings. Like they're the ones who sort of dictate the conversation with the coach. Maybe sometimes the play-by-play person or the sideline person will dictate it with the player. But by and large, it's really the analyst show. Now, you're very new to this, but in a traditional broadcast setting, you would be the one who would sort of be dictating those conversations. Has that been the case with you and Quint and Mark? Yeah. So what I would say is that, you know, our crew does a, a nice job of balancing that act. Um, Mark's been in the business 31 years. So early in the season, uh, he, he always tries to start the call off and we talk about the two deep or the three deep or, you know, who are those players? But for the most part, outside of that, um, you know, I'm the one that has to, to lead those meetings when we have our production meeting, when we talk about the overview of the game, you know, Kim Belton's looking to me when we talk, when I talk to the camera guys before the game, 
I'm the one who has to lead those meetings. And they didn't tell me that when I got in. in. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I'm like, welcome to wel- welcome to broadcast. exactly. I'm like, oh, okay. So I, I gotta I gotta lead the meeting. You mean the, the rookie, the guy that's the first year here's got to lead the meeting? Okay, cool. And I, you know, thank God I was prepared, and I and I've taken this seriously uh, because when that happened, it was just like, man, I'm I'm back in a team meeting, you know. Uh, where I'm the quarterback and I have to lead everybody and tell them about the offense and the defense and the special teams and the coach. Uh, so that was cool for me. And I, and I actually said this to, to our crew last week. Um, I told them that a lot of players, you know, when they get into this and they still, and they still have that itch to play, um, it, they miss football. And we've had such good camaraderie and, and a good tempo and having so much fun that I told them at times they've made me not miss football at all. And, and that was big time for them. They were, all, they were all shocked by that. And I just told them, because we're having so much fun doing it, look, we're on the road every week. Like, this is, this is some road warrior stuff that we're going through and, and having to travel to different cities. And I don't know if you ever tried to get to Clemson, South Carolina, but it's not easy, okay? <laughs> so, so having to go through all that, it, it's been fun. And, and we do have that camaraderie off the, off the field or off, outside of the broadcast booth and uh, that has been fun. So for me, it's just leading those meetings was something I wasn't expecting. But because I was prepared and these guys have helped me along the way, uh, it, it became second nature. And, and we really have become kind of like a family. Do you know, um, did you have any say in who you got assigned with Mark and Quint? Or did they just, uh, did at a certain point, the senior management in the college football division say, here's what we think your, your group's going to be and, and here's the group? Yeah, I would say that senior management made that decision. Um, obviously, we wanted to know, uh, my, my agent and myself, you know, Mark Lepselter wanted to know, you know, what they thought of an audition and, and how they placed um, me with the team. And I think this team, the main focus was experience. Here's the, here's the new guy. Let's put him with a very experienced group uh, in a high-level position. And as you've seen throughout the year, we've continued to – or at least we feel like we've continued to improve and we've continued to move up the ladder and get bigger and bigger games. Um, so I think it's been a testament to that decision. It was a great decision to do that. And, and I also understand how this, this media uh, business works from that regard. You, you might not be with the same team every single year. And but it was a great, great team to be a part of. And these guys have really helped. Uh, you know, my transition from the playing field to the booth really go pretty smoothly and seamlessly. Yeah. And I mean, the one thing you, it's not like you haven't had significant teams. I mean, as we talk today, you have, you have Oregon, um, Washington this coming Saturday, right? I mean, you've done Oklahoma, you mentioned you've done Clemson. So, you know, like you've already gotten a taste of top 10 college football you know it's not and no disrespect to any other team but it's not like you're calling the 74th best team in the country every week <laughs> and look we also got georgia we had number we had georgia when they're number two that's right they're yeah one. we had wake forest when they weren't ranked now they're ranked top 10 like it's been it's been very interesting and, and really cool uh just how they've gone about that picking process but uh i gotta tell one story about about mark jones and how he helped me with my preparation we were getting ready yeah, for our first, we were getting ready for our first game and we had uh, HBCU Classic there between Alcorn State and uh, was it North Carolina Central? And uh, I hadn't had a board yet. So I, I knew about boards. People had talked to me about boards, but I didn't have a board. I didn't have a person to get a board. So Mark called me up 
Mark called me up on two on Tuesday, I believe, and he and he said he was sitting with his wife and just talking about the boards. And he's like, "Hey, Robert, do you do you have anybody that set you up with a board yet?" And I said, "No, you know, I, I kind of thought that everybody just pieced together their own board. You know, look at the rosters, go print up whatever, but." There's actually people who do these things for you and and can get it set up. And so he got me set up with a woman named Claudia and I got my board uh, that Wednesday and she's been the the person ever since. And she takes care of me and Mark and a bunch of bunch of other talent. And uh, it was little stuff like that that you just don't know. As as a rookie in the NFL, I didn't know what I didn't know. And as a rookie in the casting booth, I didn't know what I didn't know. And Mark really helped me with that. And uh, it was uh, it's a funny story that we tell now, because if he wouldn't have called me, I wouldn't have a board. And I'd have just been up there looking at the looking at the sheet that they give you before with all the numbers. On the guys. So it was, uh, it was a funny thing. Yeah. And so just so people know, like what Robert's talking about with broadcast boards, this basically lists every player on both offense, defense, special teams. You essentially need it when you're calling a game to make sure that you're identifying people and the, the broadcaster art. Um, cause I've probably seen hundreds of these. It's incredible. Just some, some people like the detail they have on it. Others are sparse. It's like walking through an art gallery, Robert. Yes. Everybody, you got Picasso here, Monet here. Like it's, everybody's got their own style, but if you don't have one, you're cooked. You oh. essentially cannot do, you can't call a game without it. Oh, you can't call a game without it because that, that identification of the players and whether it be their stats or the rankings or anything, or however you want to put it together is so important because, they want to be recognized. You want to make sure you're right. And you don't want to be scrambling up there when a play is made and you have a half a second to identify. Who game's, game's too fast. You have to look down and look at the number or you have no shot to, to be correct. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal making across sports, media and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. All right, a couple more here. You, um, One of the things, I I watched the Oklahoma-Kansas game that you guys did. And um, I have to be honest, like I, I must have, I think I tweeted this out too. I was blown away because you started talking about Langston Hughes. And to me, like, uh, one, that's a cool thing for me because I lived about 15 blocks from Harlem for most of my life in New York. So Langston Hughes, obviously, Harlem Renaissance is, you can't be really a New Yorker with your eyes open and not understand his impact culturally. But it's not something that we normally hear on college football Saturday. So, like, the thing that I was struck by was, like, Robert Griffin, like, is willing to sort of just, like, Talk about what he is interested in or talk about like maybe what he thinks is an interesting historical notation about Kansas. And um, I guess when I knew I was going to have you on, I just wanted to ask you like, are, how do I sort of ask this? Like, like, is this, did you plan, did you have that pre-planned or was that something that just sort of came up in the flow of the conversation, knowing Langston Hughes's origin in Kansas, knowing his importance? Because you know, I'm just going to be honest. Like, generally speaking, you don't hear one of the great voices of the Harlem Renaissance like on college football. It's just not. It's just not a name you're going to hear. And I thought that was. I don't know. To me, I was like, wow, this guy's a. This guy's interesting and a little bit different. I could just only speak for myself as a viewer. I was like, all right, this is a guy I may want to hear again. That was pretty interesting. 
Oh man, I, I appreciate that uh, that praise, and and the way I would say it is, I don't ever go into a broadcast broadcast trying to be different. Uh, what I what we try to do is just is just be ourselves, because that's easy to do, and it, it's hard to like play this character every week. You know what I mean? So when you can go on the broadcast and you can be yourself, uh, it's easy to replicate and you become consistent. So with the Langston Hughes quote, if, if you don't remember earlier in the game, uh, Mark Jones had done a, a quote and we did a little special on Langston Hughes. Uh, so when that happened, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a quote guy. If anybody knows me or follows me on social, I, I like to, to put out the quotes and, and things like that. So I know a lot about Langston Hughes. So when we put out that quote, immediately my, my mind went straight to the Langston Hughes quote that we used or I used at the end of the game. And we tried to, you know, make sure we're giving the historical context of these places that we're going. And, and sometimes that, that's not always the prettiest thing, you know, but we're trying to tell stories because that's our job. Our job is to tell the story of the players, the coaches, the program. And it, it, I feel like it's something that our group does really well of bringing in the stories of the city. So when it, when it came to it, we knew Langston Hughes was there. We, we did a special on it. And then we closed out the broadcast with that, that other Langston Hughes quote. And That's I, what I heard. And I can tell you right now, Kim Belton, Anthony DeMarco, Mark Jones, Quint Kessinick, everybody on the team was not expecting me to use that Langston Hughes quote. But they loved it. And uh, just like yeah, did, so I figured that. That was, uh, that was a pretty cool, pretty cool moment because when we got off, got off air, they were all like, it was like an applause came down about that quote. And I, to me, I was just like, I, I just, you know, just being myself, knew, knew I had that in my head, was ready to present it. And it, and it was the perfect uh, quote for that moment. Yeah, I appreciate it. It's just different. Um, all I will say, Robert, the because uh, I wrote this down here, the best line that you've had so far that I've heard, I think you might have been on the ACC network uh, when you said, He's so dynamic with his feet that Rex Ryan is swiping right on Tinder for him. <laughs> that is a ballsy line to say on ESPN's <laughs> networks. So you will you will forever have my appreciation. Uh, <laughs> thank you, thank you, thank you for dropping that. You don't even have to comment on it. I, I just want you to know that I find I found that excellent. I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Planet Premier League podcast. Each week, Cesc Fabregas, Nader Manua and myself talk all things Premier League. As a player, you don't have time to talk. No. You don't have time to make a plan. You just need to deal with wave after wave after wave. We watched Coach Carter and he said, oh, afterwards, the game's just about doing this for your teammates. And I remember looking around halfway through the film and half the squad was asleep. <laughs> Planet Premier League. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. All right, a couple more here. Have, they, have your bosses told you at all what you'll be involved with in the NFL? Um, whether it's going to be like uh, you, you'll be in the city of the Super Bowl this year for two weeks and be on some of these NFL shows. Like, uh, have you gotten a sense of what you'll be doing yet? The sense that I have, you know, I can't uh, disclose too much, but the sense that I have right now is that they can't wait for college football to be over. <laughs> because uh, they seem to be hinting at something, Robert. Yeah, they, they they can't wait for college football to be over uh, so that they can get their hands on me more so in the NFL. Because with the the games that we're calling, and the high profile teams that we're getting, they they want to make sure I stay focused on calling these games to the best of of our ability. Um, but here and there, you're going to start seeing me get more sprinkled into the studio stuff and the NFL stuff. And uh, I think they're really excited. I had a call the other day. Uh, they're really excited about that possibility. And, 
you know, for me, I just take whatever they give at this point. You know, I'm under contract. I know what my contract says. I know what, what I, my obligations are. And then it's just about trying to exceed all expectations. So every chance I get an opportunity to go on and, and do something, I just try to make the most of it, have fun, and then uh, let, every, let the chips fall where they may. But, you know, I think uh, that process is coming, and it's coming fast because college football is going to start winding down here in a little bit. So uh, I'm, I'm excited about the possibilities as well. No, sorry. Rob, I'm going to have to make some calls, Robert, now. You're forcing me to do some work, but that's not Um Because now, now I'm intrigued. Um, the, the, one, of the things, um, one of the things that it seem, that you seem to be able to navigate or you seem to like is you like the opportunity to be a game broadcaster, which um, sort of is very defined about the game itself. You can obviously offer opinion on other things, but the clock sort of dictates you got to talk about the game. But then you like the studio part too. You like the ability to sort of sit down for like uh, 40 minutes and be able to opine on all sorts of different things. Uh, I always think that if you can be someone who excels at both, you pretty much can have a job in the business for a long time. Yeah, I think that was, uh, that was the main cog of what we wanted to do coming into this. Uh, broadcasting was never on the horizon, but it was uh, something that they felt like I could do right away. Uh, and we've, we've showcased that. Uh, but the studio stuff is also something that uh, is intriguing because you're teaching the game a different way on the broadcast. As you said, there's time constraints. There's a play going on. You have to talk about the players in that game. But you do get opportunities to speak about the college football playoff and, and the rankings and things like that. But when you're in the studio, whether it be college, NFL or just general sports talk, uh, you actually have an opportunity to let the viewer fully understand your mindset and your thought process on certain things. And I don't think it's a, a thing where I think to myself what I think is the most important. But if I'm on that set, uh, my job is to portray my thoughts the best I possibly can for the person who's watching. Maybe there's someone who agrees. Maybe there's someone who disagrees. But at the end of the day, uh, that opinion, that firm discussion that I'm having with my own self uh, is something I think I can portray really well to the viewer. And I, I look forward to, to also doing that. It'll be fun. You know, uh, there's only one Stephen A. Smith, right? But uh, you, you have an opportunity to just be yourself and, and let that come out when you're in the studio uh, a lot more for the viewer. And you're a lot more visible when you're doing the studio stuff than when you're being uh, in the broadcast booth. But uh, it is something that I'm interested in doing both for a long time. All right, here's the last one. Um, and I realize, you've, you know, your broadcasting career at the moment is not long, but I think you're perceptive enough to have an interesting take on this. Um, you've seen a lot of people, dur even during your uh, athletic life, had who, very famous people um, go into broadcasting, and, and they, they're they don't necessarily succeed, if that's the right word, or they're out of broadcasting fairly shortly. Very famous, well-known people. Do you have a sense, at least at this point of your young broadcasting career, why you think certain people succeed for the long haul and why perhaps certain people don't succeed for the long haul? Uh, Richard, I think it's, it's exactly what you said at the beginning of this uh, podcast. It's preparation. Preparation is the key. And, you know, you can say it about every walk of life, playing the game, talking about the game, going to your nine to five, whatever. Preparation is the key. And I think that is a big reason why people don't succeed. They don't understand how much work goes into this. You know, it's, it's a lot of studying. It's a lot of meticulous work that you might not want to do, but for me, coming straight off the field into the booth has helped because it was the same way when I played, you know? 
it's meticulous work. It's, it's hard work. It's studying, doing these different things. So for me, it's been an easier transition because I didn't have a break uh, from playing to doing TV. And I also went into it knowing, you know, having, having great mentors and people who talked to me about how much work it was going to take. And if you want to be the best at anything in life, you got to put the work in. So I think that's why it's not personality. Yes, you can't coach personality. You can't teach personality. You either have it or you don't. But it, it's the preparation because there's a lot of people on TV right now that don't have the greatest personalities, but they are prepared and they can speak and they can deliver their opinion quickly, uh, concisely uh, in an effective manner. So uh, I think that's what the two biggest things is preparation uh, and just the want to put in the work. Before we go, you got a dream, uh, you got a dream assignment or a dream show that you've always wanted to be on and. In, in the uh, you know, I, I've learned uh, just in the last couple months that you don't want to you don't want to speak too quickly because the media landscape changes very fast. And you know, maybe a show that you thought, hey, man, I really want to be on that show might, maybe doesn't exist uh, in, a, in, a, in a year or two. So for me, I just want to be the best. That's it. I want to be the best at, at what, I, what I'm doing. Uh, I want to be a great teammate for the people that are on the, the crew with me. Um, I want them to shine. I want I want to go out and just have fun. So whatever the biggest, best opportunities are out there, you can list them. I want them all. You know, I want to go and, and have fun. And, and I'm an ambitious guy. If anybody who's ever known me over the years or followed me over the years on social, uh, I'm a I'm a very positive guy. You know, uh, I believe that anything is achievable. And that's just the way I operate. I'm not in this to be mediocre. I'm not in this just to do it for 20 to 30 years. I'm in, I'm in this to do it for a long time and be the best. So that's the approach I take to it every single day. So uh, I try to bring the, bring the energy, uh, genuine energy, you know, try to make people laugh, entertain, and give them some knowledge that maybe they didn't know before the broadcast. Yeah, Robert, I enjoyed this. Let me give uh, Robert's uh, sort of bio here. Uh, Robert Griffin III joined ESPN as a college football and NFL analyst in August of 20. 21. He calls a weekly ESPN ABC college game with Mark Jones and Quinn Kessinick. They have um, Oregon. Uh, did I lose? Just losing my track here. Who do you have, Robert? Oregon yep, at Washington. Oregon Washington. Week. I should have. Uh, I should have known that. And um, and obviously we'll, we'll have a couple more games before uh, the season ends. As Robert sort of hinted here, you looks like you'll be able to see him at some kind of NFL uh, related opportunities heading forward. And once again, we give him an award for perhaps the greatest line uttered in 2021 on an ESPN broadcast regarding Rex Ryan. Uh, Robert, man, I really enjoy this. You're somebody I've been wanting to talk to uh, for a couple weeks now, and I'm, I'm really glad you made the time. I know it's uh, your time is valuable. Thanks very much for joining me on the Sports Media Podcast, and I hope we can do it again, man. I, I think you're going to have great success in this, and I look forward to watching that journey. Hey, Richard, I appreciate that, man. really do, and appreciate you having me on, man. Like I, I understand the, the magnitude of who you are as well, and Ah, you do easy, in, Robert. In this business, okay, <laughs> I understand it. So, look, you want to talk? We can talk. Uh, I had a lot of fun today, oh, and uh, I appreciate beautiful. you uh, taking the time to to give me the, the platform and and just uh, this whole process of, of being a rookie in the business has been been a lot of fun. And hey, who knows? Maybe that line about Rex Ryan in the feet. Maybe we get an Emmy for that one. I don't know. I don't know if they're going to give. You got my. You got it's. It's not worth anything, Robert. You got my Emmy. <laughs> that's, that's, that's all that matters. All right, Robert Griffin. Thank you, Robert. I uh, appreciate you, brother. God bless. Hey, All right. As I said at the top of this podcast, uh, these are two of the best colleagues that I have. Uh, incredible reputations, given what they do. Katie Strang 
is an investigative reporter for The Athletic, one of the best at what she does. Mark Lazarus is a senior writer for The Athletic. By the way, I'm not even sure those are their titles. I'm just calling you guys that for hopefully those titles uh, work for you. Um, and um, I wanted to bring them on because, you know, I think if you follow Katie's work, you know that she's um, reported on, you know, some of the some of the hardest and most important stories that The Athletic has done. Mark, obviously, uh, is uh, well-known in Chicago and has written about the Blackhawks and Chicago teams. And for the purposes of this podcast, guys, um, the results of the Jenner block investigation have come out. It's one of the biggest stories to hit the NHL in years. So, Kate, I want to start with you. Very open-ended question, and that is, why is this story so important? I think it has really exposed some cultural and systemic flaws within the sport within NHL. You know, I, I said this the other night too, but it is really staggering the number of individuals who fa- who failed Kyle Beach in this situation. And it's pretty staggering just in how many ways, um, you know, the whole entire infrastructure of, you know, the member clubs in the league failed Kyle Beach and the NHLPA as well. So I think, you know, if you want to make efforts toward um, ensuring that this does not happen again, uh, you have to be able to really take an honest look at, at failures to prevent them from happening again. And boy, there's an abundance of them here. Mark, do you see it the same way? This is a story ultimately of the failure of uh, of a large organization made up of smaller organizations. Absolutely. I mean, almost every senior member of the Blackhawks organization was in that May 23rd meeting where this was brought to their attention and not one of them stood up and did the right thing. And that's partly hockey culture where you just don't make waves, partly the obsession with winning over all else, team performance above all else, as Blackhawks CEO Danny Wirtz put it. And it's partly about the bully culture, the office culture that was in the Blackhawks. John McDonough, the president of the Blackhawks back then, ran that team with an iron fist. He was in that room. And if he says no, then everybody says, "Okay, yes, sir. Right away, sir. Nobody had the courage to stand up to do the right thing. Nobody had the inclination to do it because they feared John McDonough. They feared disrupting team chemistry, as as, as Joel Quenville uh, reportedly put it. Uh, Everybody was afraid. And, you know, we need to have a hockey world like this. This this could be a come to Jesus kind of moment for hockey in general, where we reestablish, you know, basic human decency and the proper way to handle things and the prioritization of human beings over, you know, Stanley Cups. Katie, this, um, you know, this is at its core, a, a media podcast, sports media podcast. So there certainly are um, there are a lot of hockey podcasts out there. I hope they're all talking about this. I want to focus on the reporting of this story, or maybe maybe sort of the broader media coverage of this story. I think it's very clear that uh, Rick Westhead's interview, Rick Westhead is a TSN investigative reporter with Kyle Beach, is sort of the, um, it's the moment where this, I think, I don't know if it's right, sort of right phrase to say it sort of became national or cultural, but it's the singular moment where if you watch that interview at all, you you couldn't help but just have... I feel awful for Kyle, feel how let down he was from the NHL and the NHLPA. I mean, it was one of the most extraordinary live interviews, honestly, I've ever seen on sports television. And so for you, I wonder, how have you processed the reporting of this story from the highest of the high, which is obviously what Rick Westhead has done, 
to, to everything else that falls under that. Yeah. I mean, Rick deserves so much credit for how relentless and dogged he has been in pursuing the story. Like we, we wouldn't be doing this podcast today if it weren't for him, there would not have been a Jenner and black report had it not been for him. Um, and, and also, you know, obviously huge credit to Kyle because you're right that that interview was such a game changer in the sense of, you know, I think what it did is it forced people in a very visceral way to confront the human cost of inaction and the human cost of systemic failure and the human cost of institutional protectionism. There is not a human being, you do not have to be a hockey fan, there's not a human being that could not have watched that interview and not felt on a very human level, the level of torment and anguish and pain that Kyle Beach has suffered. I mean, when he apologized to that Michigan teen who was assaulted in 2013 after Brad Aldrich left the Blackhawks, I mean, I was full on weeping. And it was so powerful that this young man who tried so desperately to ensure that no one else was going to encounter the same sort of harm that he did, tried so hard to do the right thing, to escalate, to report via as many avenues as possible, was just like met with utter ambivalence and apathy every step of the way. And people do need to know like the human cost, the echo, the reverberations of trauma. Um, they, all the people that Kyle Beach reported to and disclosed to and who had knowledge of this and did nothing, they could not have maybe prevented what happened to him, but they certainly could have helped prevent like the entire re-traumatization of, of being, you know, treated with such, you know, I want to say disregard, but it almost feels like utter contempt for his personal well-being and safety. And so I'm so glad that that interview saw the light of day um, because I think it has forced people to act. Mark, what have, uh, what have the challenges been for you and Scott Powers and others in Chicago in reporting this story? Well, I mean, from a very, you know, unimportant level, it's been a challenge because Scott and I are the Blackhawks beat writers for The Athletic. We have to write about the hockey stuff, right? And so we started reporting on this in May and June. And then, you know, Stan Bowman's a central figure in all this. But then, you know, he goes and he trades for Seth Jones and he saw trades for Marc-Andre Fleury and he does all these things. And we have to write about the hockey side and we have to you know, talk to him about hockey questions. And it's, it's almost an uncomfortable feeling because like Katie said, you know, your focus is on the bigger picture. You know, you always want to write about the stories that matter. And, you know, a hockey trade doesn't matter in the way that this story has mattered. You know, Katie said that she was, you know, weeping when, when Kyle apologized to the, the, the teen in Houghton. I was furious. It made me so angry because nobody on the Blackhawks had said that they were sorry. Nobody involved had said they were sorry. And the first person we heard to say he was sorry was Kyle Beach. And, you know, you're supposed to take emotion out of this and you're supposed to look at this objectively, but it, it, that's not realistic. We're all humans here. And it's that emotion that drives you to find the truth and drives you to expose people that have done wrong. And so to have to try to do that and, you know, work the story while also, hey, the Blackhawks might be pretty good this year. Side note, they're not. But, you know, the, the, to, to write the hockey side of things 
was you, you, you felt it felt really frivolous. Like me and Scott talked about this all the time of how unimportant it felt to write about the things we were writing when it came to writing about the hockey. We just wanted to focus on this other story. But, you know, Katie is an investigative reporter. This is what she does. We had to kind of straddle that line. Uh, and thank God for Katie, because we couldn't do it. We were able to do without her because she does so much legwork and so much of the heavy lifting while we're sitting there writing about what possible line combinations might be. So it's, it's an awkward spot to be in. I want to uh, stay with you, Mark, and then get back to Katie just on the, and we'll probably finish up on that sort of the challenges of reporting these types of stories. You know, one of the, um, one of the things that happens with fan bases, Mark, as you know, is that there's, um, there are probably a group of fans who want to read the unvarnished truth about their team. There's certainly a group of fans, perhaps even bigger that don't necessarily want, uh, want reporters to delve into the, the underbelly of a team and we'll sort of get angry at the media for doing that from what you've seen, at least over the last week or so, how is the, how's the Blackhawks fan base reacted to some of the things that you and Scott powers have written, because you've been you've been pretty brutally honest about the, the institutional failures here, at the Blackhawks organization, you know, uh, it, it's Twitter in the comments section. You're always going to have your, uh, your, your outliers that are just particularly allowed, but it's been pretty universal condemnation of the Blackhawks here. There's nobody saying this isn't a big deal. There's there are people trying to rationalize it away. People who don't understand how power dynamics work, and you know John McDonough is apparently one of them who doesn't understand how a six foot four uh, hockey player could be assaulted by a much smaller person because they don't understand how power dynamics work. But for the most part, I mean, you know the people people agree with what we're writing. I mean, how could you not? I mean, we're not going out on big limbs by saying that this is institutional failure here, right? There's nobody who sides with the sexual assaulter. You know, the internet's awful, but it's not that awful. Um, there, there, there are allies. You know, Scott and I had a story uh, on Monday about you know tangible changes the Blackhawks could make to improve hockey culture and improve their own culture and kind of start the long road back to earning back some credibility and respectability. And it has been met by all the trolls very harshly on Twitter. And I mean, we're, we're getting back into that now. Now that the dust has settled to some degree, we're getting back into the people screaming out about us for not talking about how the Blackhawks are 07 and 2 right now instead of focusing on the Brad Aldrich fallout. Katie, um, you know, I can't even, you could probably do, you could probably teach a semester, to be honest, at a journalism school on investigative, the kind of investigating reporting that you do. And while, you know, I, we don't, I only have you for a little bit today, when I sort of think about the stuff that you report on, and it, it's just, it's not something I could do. I just, I, I don't, whatever it, whatever it is that sort of that you possess, like I think it's unique to certain reporters. But one of the things I thought about was that ultimately, one, you have to have the ability to, to, to find the right people in an organization who are willing to talk. But then secondly, the, the, the ability to get them to trust you, to, 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 to have trust in the, Reporter, and of course that takes time. So you need an organization that's willing to invest time and and resources. Um, how challenging is it for you to do what you do in terms of, I guess, at a base level, just getting people people perhaps who were um, sexually assaulted or harassed, um, who have had horrible things done upon them, to trust in you at one point, a stranger, to ultimately tell their story. 
Yeah, you know, it's it is tough and it's probably a, was a bit tougher, you know, during the past couple of years just because you're primarily doing a lot of this reporting over the phone and you're not having that sort of nonverbal communication and rapport building that you can get sitting face to face with someone, but you know, what I always try to, you know, bring to the table is an understanding that um, you know, I am not entitled to someone else's pain or trauma or grief. That is something that you have to earn by establishing a level of trust. And that trust is is earned truly like incrementally. And, and you have to be able to show, um, you know, I think a level of sort of curiosity, compassion, empathy, um, and open-mindedness. And so... You know, I, I try to educate myself about, you know, trauma-informed reporting and the fact that, you know, trauma physiologically has very serious impacts. It rewires your brain. It, you know, it causes you to remember things in nonlinear fashion. Um, sometimes really inconsequential details um, will seem sort of you know, really front of mind where other really large sweeping things can be difficult to grasp and retrieve. Um, so I try to keep all those things in mind when I go into a story. I think people can genuinely tell when you care. Um, and that to me is usually the biggest thing. If people feel like you care about what happened to them, I think you're on your way to earning their trust. Um, and I always say, like, it, listen, it is depressing writing about this type of stuff day in and day out. It's hard. It is very emotionally taxing. It's very labor intensive. Um, and, you know, for every two people that tell you to fuck off or slam a door in your face and really sort of sully your idea of <laughs> humanity, um, there is always one person who will speak up for no other reason than because they feel like it's the right thing to do. And so those are always sort of like, you know, the affirming features of this reporting, um, but it is hard work. Well, let really me chime is. in here and just say, you know, I, I, this, this is, you know, really my first experience of really diving deeply into a story like this. And, you know, the fact that Katie's doing stories like this all the time, you need support. The secondhand trauma is a real thing. And I think a lot of us by the end of last week, especially, were just mentally fried and, 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 and feeling the weight of what we've been writing. And just, you know, when you start losing faith in humanity, it weighs on you. And uh, it's important, you know, I, I had a whole bunch of colleagues, including Katie, call me up out of nowhere, people I barely know even just, hey, how you doing? You doing okay? Like it from a reporting side of things, having the, the support of colleagues who have done this before and understand what you're going through, that helps your empathy, I think, when you're talking to people in the future. That if me just thinking about this is causing me to feel like this, what must it be like to have actually endured these things? And I think that kind of like refuels your outrage meter and your empathy meter, all those things you need to keep pursuing stories like this. I think that goes a long way. Little little gestures like that go a long way. The that's well said. The the uh, the last thing I want to ask you, uh, Kate, I'll start with you, and then Mark, you should finish. Is you know this all comes in the backdrop of new media rights deals for the NHL with ESPN and Turner, and just given obviously what I do, one of the things I was thinking about today, Katie, was just that this is a big test for those two organizations very early because um you know you th I think you learn a lot about 
the media rights holders in terms of the stories that they'll talk about and how far they'll go, both in commentary and in reporting. And I think, you know, what we've seen, at least if we want to use the NFL as an example, you know, pregame shows and things, places like that, they're, they're very quick to talk about player transaction, player transgressions, uh, certainly, you know, uh, the organizational dynamics when it comes to the field that are dysfunctional, but very rarely do they ever sort of go after Goodell or mention someone like Dan Snyder by name or Jeff Pash or, you know, for a long time, very rarely did you, did you hear significant discussions on concussions. And so I think to myself, what is Turner and ESPN, what are they going to do here in terms of a story like this? And quite frankly, I don't know the answer. I really don't. I think we'll ultimately see over the next couple months. I don't think they're going to have a choice. To be honest, I, I don't think you can afford to ignore the enormity of this moment and just how wide reaching the implications are. I mean, what this fundamentally comes down to um, is player safety and well-being, which was not prioritized, nor was it protected. And it comes down to leadership. And I hope we are all having like really honest conversations about what we expect of the people who rise to positions of authority and influence. Because the reality is, for me, it feels pretty unequivocal. If you are not able to prioritize player safety and well-being over winning, then you are not fit to lead. That's it. You know, I think with I think you know ESPN and TNT, uh, they're new to this, right? So there's a there's a chance here to establish your own credibility. I think looking at this just from a cynical business standpoint, it would behoove them to attack this the way they should attack it. NBC Sports was very cozy with the league. ESPN has a much larger reporting apparatus. It has real journalists at its disposal, people that can really report these things. And I'd like to see them attack it. I think they have been, you know, they've been reporting on it. They haven't ignored it the way that maybe it would have been in the past. Um, so I think I think that this has happened so early in the 10 years of both TNT and ESPN that they they should and will look at this as a chance to establish their kind of you know bona fides as an independent news source, even as a rights holder. Yeah, and I'll, I should have been clear sort of in my sort of intro to this. There, there really is ultimately uh, a very big sort of difference sometimes between how the digital or, you know, journalistic or writing in handle something and the, the television presentation. So no doubt ESPN.com and, you know, Emily Kaplan, Greg Wyshynski, they, they have absolutely written about this. And that's a good point by Mark. Uh, Katie Strang is an investigative reporter for The Athletic. Check out her work on that site. Mark Lazarus is a senior writer for The Athletic based in Chicago. As you said, he covers the Blackhawks and writes about some of the other teams in Chicago. Uh, Katie and Mark, thanks so much today for joining me on the Sports Media Podcast. All right, back in the studio, my thanks to Robert Griffin III and Katie Strang and Mark Lazarus for their time and insights. Uh, really appreciate all of them. It's a very good episode, and um, and I hope you uh, I hope you agree with that sentiment. If, um, if you like these podcasts, please head to the Richard Deitch uh, where I should say the sports media with Richard Deitch page on uh, Apple or iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever you get your Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts, uh, leave us a review and a note. That is how this uh, podcast continues. If you want to head to the archives and look at some of the recent conversations, uh, previous podcast to this, ESPN reporter and Utah jazz analyst Holly Rowe, uh, Jimmy Trina came on, as well as uh, Ivan Maisel his new book on uh, grieving the death of his son. 
Prior to that, Ken Belson of the New York Times on his reporting on the Washington football team investigation and the emails that came out, as well as uh, Jamel Hill and Grant Wall on that episode. Prior to that, Jeff Van Gundy of ESPN, who uh, is always interesting when he comes on these kind of forums, as well as a sports media roundtable with Kavitha Davidson and Chad Finn. I want to thank Patrick Antonetti, of course, for all his work when it comes to this podcast. Thanks to everybody, Cage 13. And thank you for listening. We'll see you soon on the Sports Media Podcast.